Father, you are a covering for us. As we have studied through the tabernacle, Lord, in last week, looking specifically at those four coverings that you ordained to be placed over the tabernacle, those four coverings that picture Jesus in your plan of redemption for us, we are reminded, Lord, that you are a covering for us today in our lives against the harsh things of the world against the hopelessness that so often comes with a daily life lived outside of Christ Father you are a covering for us and beneath that covering Father we feel security and safety and protection against those things that would seek to harm us and Father we're not talking about things of the flesh as Jesus said don't fear those who can kill the body rather those who can destroy the soul but you are a covering for our souls Lord and within the security of this covering we can walk and hope and live life alive And we praise you for this. We thank you for providing this. This hope of eternity with you. Salvation, redemption, atonement. All that which we could not achieve on our own. And I pray tonight, Father, as we study your word yet again, that you would cover us more. As we go through the Bible cover to cover, that you would continue to keep us safe in your arms. Surround us with your holiness. Spirit, teach us, lead us into these things. As we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And I have to wonder what church has the benefit of piped in birds singing like we have. Is it the best? Yeah. Between Barb's piano and the birds, I was sitting there going, I don't want to stop. I don't want to teach. I just want to sit here. Beautiful. Thank you, Barb. Exodus chapter 26. Exodus 26. And if you don't have a Bible, get one. No, we'll give you one. If you don't have one, they're in the back stacked up, those those blue Bibles. I always encourage you, as you know, to have them, because otherwise you won't have a clue what we're talking about. It keeps you focused on where we're headed, what we're doing, verse by verse. So I've told you many times, this is my favorite time of the week, Wednesday night. It is the one thing that I would not give up. Um, I love the time in worship, I love the time in fellowship, and I love just going through God's Word. And so we're in Exodus chapter 26, we'll begin in verse 31, and I mentioned as we prayed that we were talking about four coverings that were covered in the first half of chapter 26, four coverings, and without looking at your Bibles, do you remember what they are? What was the first covering that went over the tabernacle? Any memory of that? As Marianne just stopped, that was good. You stopped yourself from looking. <laughs> linen. The first one was fine twisted linen, and it was dyed in four colors. Do you remember the four colors? One was scarlet. Scarlet, absolutely, was one. Purple, blue, blue white. 
White. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So four colors on the fine twisted linen. That was the first covering. There was a second covering that went over on top of that. Goat's hair. Goat's hair. We talked about how it was likely a black or a very dark covering that went over that went over that beautiful covering that was underneath, and you had the black goat's hair covering. The third covering. Do you recall what the third covering was? It was some what? Porpoise skin or something? That's the last one. Porpoise skin or sea cow skin. I like saying sea cow. And did you get a funny picture when you think of a sea cow? Can you milk them? Anyway, the third covering was dyed red. It was what? Ramskin. Ramskin dyed red. That picture of redemption. And I just love the layers here. We see in that first layer that picture of Jesus, which we'll see even more powerfully tonight. And then the second layer, that, that picture of sin in the dark goat skin. And then we see the ram skin dyed red, that picture of sacrifice washing away sin. And then the last covering was sea cow, porpoise, a, a type of a whale known in the Middle East, um, not around here, at least as far as I'm aware. I haven't seen any sea cow pictures. But it was tough and leathery and protective and secure. And it would age and it would get beaten and it would get weathered in the desert, but it would be strong and thick and protected for the tabernacle on the outside. And yet we know on the inside was the beauty. That's kind of a wonder of Christianity. I don't know if you realize this, but as we walk through day by day in our Christian lives, we may get more beaten and weathered and toughened up. And we may have stripes across us and we may be wiped out and we may fade a little bit and we may loose hair and color and all these things and yet there is something about the person who walks in Christ there is something almost amazing about their eyes you can see that joy you can see them lit up inside you know that inside though they're being as Paul said we're wasting away day by day but inwardly we are being renewed day by day and that picture in the tabernacle, even there of, of a Christian walking in our lives, getting worn out on the outside, beat up, life taking its toll, but on the inside, man, if you walk with Jesus, there is no place for bitterness, there's no place for sorrow, there's no place for just being worn out because you're being renewed. Well, Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, we continue on now. And the Bible tells us you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Sound familiar? It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang, hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. And you shall hang up the veil under the clasps, and you shall bring the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil... The veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. And you shall set the table outside of the veil. That is the table of showbread we've talked about. And the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. That means if you walk into the holy of holies... The, t- the lampstand lit up there is on the left side, the south side, and the table of showbread is on the right side, the north side, and then there to the west, straight in front of you, would be the veil, the partition. Attached to the veil also will be the altar of incense, which we haven't gotten to yet. The Lord is saving that one for us, possibly next week, the week after. But it tells us that, again, the veil shall serve for us as a partition. 
Uh, he puts the mercy seat in the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies, sets the table outside the veil, the lampstand opposite the table on the south side, and you shall put the table on the north side. The veil. Here we are introduced for the first time to the veil. And its significance is absolutely astounding. Like the innermost covering of the tabernacle itself, the veil was made of fine twisted linen. But it may as well have been made of solid steel because it existed to divide. It was like the Berlin Wall, in a sense, in that nobody could cross the veil except one person. Save one man annually, the high priest, on the day Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, he could go around behind the veil. But other than that, no Israelite, no person, could pass beyond the veil. It was a wonderful, terrifying, necessary day. The Day of Atonement. That veil existed to partition and protect the people from the awesome and overwhelming glory of God. I don't know if you've thought about this, but God, His glory, He brought His glory into the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. And so that veil wasn't just saying, you're not good enough to be near me. That veil was saying, don't come around this, because if you do, you're going to die. God loved His people so much that He protected His people from Himself. From his overpowering, awesome glory. Which raises a question. How does a God, the likes of our Lord, dwell among people? How does God set down and live among the people? Psalm 113 verse 5 tells us, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Well, Moses, you may remember, wanted to see God. We haven't even gotten there yet. That's in Exodus 33, a story coming up, but we'll look ahead. He wanted to see God with his own eyes. He had been in conversation with God. He experienced the wonder of God's power as the children of Israel had so far traveled in the desert. But now Moses, like many of us, is getting more hungry. He wants more from the Lord. By the way, side note, oftentimes when we want more from the Lord, we miss a very simple fact that simplicity in Jesus is more. When we're looking for more experience, Jesus is saying, there's no greater thing than prayer. There's no thing more wonderful than than worship, than just being in my word. It's very simple. And sometimes we get caught up and say, well, okay, I've had the Bible. I've had the prayer time. I've had that. I want more. And Jesus is saying, then open the Bible again. Then pray longer. Because the more is found in the time spent in relationship with me. Not in other flashy things. So we could put lights up on the stage. We could get dancing girls. We could do all kinds of things to attract people to the bridge. To try and give them more of an experience. Rather than just a barn and some birds. A few notes played on piano. But the reality is with Jesus, more comes in relationship. And it is very simple. Well, Moses wanted more. He says, Exodus 33:18, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. Dude, you're way out of line to paraphrase the Lord. Moses, there's no way you can handle this. He goes on and he says, behold, there is a place by me. And you shall stand there on the rock. On the rock. You know that's interesting to me because it's, that's how we come into God's presence when we stand on the rock. 
as we stand on the rock, then we can come near the Lord. But he says, I want you to stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you. I'm going to cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then God says, Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, it wasn't just his back. By the way, the words there don't imply that Moses just saw his backside as he went away. What it implies is that he would see the glory of God as it was fading as God went on his way. And that's all that Moses could handle, was just a momentary glimpse at the fading glory of God as he moved away. More than that, and Moses would have been a dead man. And every time someone comes into the presence of the Lord in Scripture, we see that experience of falling like a dead man. John in the book of Revelation, one of the most powerful examples of that. John sees Jesus glorified in his awesome glorified state. And the Bible tells us he falls down like a dead man. Because we can't handle that awesome glory of God. How does a God of perfect light dwell in the midst of darkness? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And how does a sinless God dwell among sinful man? You know, we forget about that. We come into this place to worship and we nonchalantly pray, Lord, come and be here among us. Holy Spirit, join us in this place. Do we realize what we're asking? We are asking the awesome, righteous, perfect God of light to come into a place of our, our darkness and our, our sin. How does God do that? Psalm 18, verse 30 says, As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? And so early on, God designated the veil to be a dividing wall between Himself and man. A wall that could only be parted by one act. Atonement. And that, by the way, is why we can ask the Holy Spirit to come into this place. Why we can actually invite Him to dwell in our very hearts because of atonement. For the Jew, it happened once a year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. One chance in a year to come before the Lord for the high priest to go in. And you, you know the story. The high priest was going with a rope tied around his ankle just in case. They heard a thud. And a few days go by and it's only the smell of a human body, the stench, then they could pull him out. Because it was so awesome. And all Israel, the whole camp, gathered around the tabernacle would just be waiting with bated breath for the high priest to come back out. And when he did, they knew our sin has been atoned for. Temporarily. Atonement. That's what does it. Now, as we've seen, everything in the tabernacle is either a picture of or a pointer to Jesus Christ. Everything. There's not a socket, a pole, a piece of material that does not in some way either point to or prescribe or show us or portray Jesus. And it's amazing. And you may say, well, Rick, I think sometimes you're taking it a little too far. Well, let's watch and see a little more tonight. Let's see how much further we can take it. But I'm telling you, the more you look at these things, the more you see Jesus. And the veil, the veil between the holy place and the holiest place is no exception. And you might ask, well, how does the veil speak of Jesus? The nice thing is on this one, we don't even have to speculate. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 tells us exactly how the veil points to Jesus. 
Hebrews 10, 19. I'll read this to you. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Hebrew writer, this is so cool, he draws on this awesome picture that any good Israelite would recognize and remember. He says, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Well, that would happen in the outer courtyard when you come to the brazen altar. That bronze altar of sacrifice, where you're, you're sprinkled there. The blood of the animal sacrifice would be sprinkled on the altar to be sprinkled clean. And then the Hebrew writer says, with our bodies washed with pure water. Well, the second thing, the second piece of furniture or article within the courtyard, there is the bronze labor. Where the priest would wash up, would ceremonially cleanse themselves before going into the holy place. The Hebrew writer says, our bodies wash with pure water. And finally he says, entering the most holy place through the veil. His flesh. His flesh. How do we enter the holy place of God? David, you were just asking that before. How do we, how do we get in there? How do we really experience that holy place? How do we enter? Simply. Through the flesh of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? We'll talk about that tonight. Once again, in the veil, we see some familiar colors. And we talked about what they stand for, the blue and the purple and the scarlet and the white. But think about these in terms of the flesh of Jesus tonight for a moment. That blue color. That blue color which reminds me that Jesus in the flesh was heavenly minded. He was heavenly focused. Jesus talked about heaven and hell more than anything else. Actually, he talked about hell more even than he talked about heaven. Did you know that? And he did so because he was so concerned that nobody ended up there. He was heavenly minded in the flesh. Matthew 25, 13, Jesus said, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. How many times do we hear Jesus say, Be on the alert, keep watch, be ready. The Son of Man is coming in a day that you do not think He will. Some of you have heard me ask the question before, and I love asking this. Do you believe that Jesus will be here in the next five minutes? How many people absolutely believe that without a doubt? He will be here in five minutes. We've got one could be and a lot of people staring thinking, I'm not going to raise my hand and look like an idiot. Because in five minutes, we're all going to know that I was wrong. The nice thing about that is because none of us raised our hands, that indicates even more so that he could be here in five minutes because he's coming at a time we do not think he will. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe while Barb was still playing, just we open our eyes and we're just there. He's coming at a time we do not think He will. He was heavenly minded in the flesh as He walked in the flesh. The the blue, that picture of heaven, the purple. Jesus was a ruler. He had great authority. You remember He taught with great authority. The people saw in Jesus something unique. Something that they said, and it's kind of a judgment on the scribes and Pharisees, the people said, He teaches in a way that they don't. He's not like them when He teaches. No, instead this man teaches with authority. As though the very words were coming from himself and not from Scripture. What they didn't understand was there was no difference. He is the Word. He was the Word made flesh. So when he spoke, it was the Word of God. And there is no distinction, by the way, between Old Testament Scriptures and New Testament Scriptures. It's all his words. 
And so everything that Jesus spoke and everything that was written in the Old Testament Scriptures, it's all His Word, it's all legitimate, it's all valuable, it's all from the mouth of God. So He knew that He was a ruler, and yet what's interesting about Jesus is when He came the first time, He knew His rule was not of the flesh. He was heavenly minded in the flesh, but he knew his rule was not of the flesh. John chapter 6 verse 14. This is right after the miracle of the loaves and the fish, and the people are going wild. They're absolutely amazed. They're blown away, and who wouldn't be? You know, if after a Sunday morning when we're having a barbecue out here, which we're going to do very soon, but if we're doing that and nobody brought any food, and I said, don't worry about it, just sit in little groups and we'll take care of it. We break bread and someone has some fish, and next thing we know we're having a fish fry and we're having a great time. They were blown away, and John 6.14 says, When the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And so Jesus, perceiving that they intended to come and take him by force to make him king, stood up on the highest rock and welcomed their worship and praise. And you know that that's not what it says. What it says is, knowing they were intending to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself, alone. And we see this. When people tried to make Jesus king, he said, no, not this time. Not now. And then, of course, before Pilate, in that amazing confrontation, as Pilate thinks he has all the authority to condemn and to execute Jesus, he stands there face to face with this world ruler, this great man, Pilate, And Pilate begins to question him and ask him, why is it that your own people, the Jews, are against you? And here's Jesus' answer. Listen very closely. It's important. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He says, But my kingdom is not of this world. And that sets up a problem. Especially for those who are, well, premillennial in their thinking. Those who believe that there is an actual, literal, thousand-year reign to come on earth. That as far as the scriptures say, the Old Testament prophetic scriptures we've read before, the book of Revelation, it is clear, it's obvious. Revelation chapter 20 saying six times that there will be a thousand-year reign. It's really kind of hard to dispute it. I mean, you have to to go allegorical, and you have to weave your way all around Scripture to try and make it say something else. The Bible is clear. There will be a thousand-year millennial reign with Jesus as King, setting foot in Jerusalem. So how do we reconcile that when he says, My kingdom is not of this world? One little word. One little word in the Greek language that I wish had been translated correctly, but not a single Bible translation translates it correctly. Which is interesting to me. I don't know why. But we reconcile it this way. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. The word of is the Greek word ex. E-K. A two-letter, tiny little word. My my kingdom is not of this world. No, it's not of. The word of there, or was translated of, is from. Ex. From. My kingdom is not from this world. 
It's not from this world. Now listen again to the context of his words. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from this realm. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying that my kingdom will not be set up by human hands. My kingdom will not come from the strength of man. My kingdom will not grow out of the worth of this world. That is not where my kingdom comes from. My kingdom is coming from the sky. My kingdom will come with me. And what I love about Revelation 19 describing the return of Jesus on that white charger and all of the saints behind him riding white horses as well is as he comes to make war, not a single saint behind him lifts a finger, raises a bow, or chucks a spear. Not a one. We won't even have a chance to do it. Why is that? Because Jesus, with the sword of his mouth, slays it all, wipes out those who are against him. And he brings his kingdom into the world. My kingdom is not from this world. Not from this world. Jesus knew his royalty was not of the flesh. Would not be powered by earthly might. It does not and will not rest in the hands of men to accomplish. And with that thought, my friends, we can take a huge breath and let it all out and relax. Because the battle is the Lord's. So what do we do? How do we fight? Prayer? Faith? Righteousness? When Paul describes these things in Ephesians chapter 6, you look over the list. Truth? These are the weapons of a warrior of Jesus. And these weapons are very powerful in the spiritual realm. Because again, the kingdom does not come out of this world. It is not the fantastic programs of men. It is not the big cathedrals we build. It's not all the bright ideas we have about how to do church. It's very simply a kingdom brought by the Lord. And a people who get to enjoy that with the Lord. So Jesus knew his royalty was not of the flesh. The scarlet colors. We see the blue, we see the purple in this veil, we see the scarlet color again, which reminds us that Jesus was sacrificed in the flesh. Now, for most of us, that's pretty easy to accept. If you're a Christian or if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you say, yeah, he came, he was the Word made flesh, he was a human being, he was also God, he was sacrificed in the flesh. That word scarlet, you might remember, is the word tola'a. We talked about last week, it also means, I mean, scarlet, it also means worm, both. It was a crimson worm that literally was crushed and squished up and made into the scarlet dye that was used for material. And so the word in the Bible in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, means either scarlet or worm. It's translated both ways. But Jesus, listen, and this is important, his death, when he said, I am as a worm, Psalm 22, his death was physical and real. It was tangible. Why is this a big deal, right? When John was writing his gospel, and in the first century church, there was a heresy that was being passed around called Gnosticism. Gnostic from the Greek word gnosis, or to know. And these people thought they had the special knowledge. That's what Gnosticism was. And this special knowledge was that you could separate, actually, the spiritual from the physical. That they were two separate things. You could be a very spiritual person, and you could be very base. In your physical body, the physical body didn't mean anything. And the Gnostics actually believed and taught that Jesus didn't actually die in the flesh. That his spirit came away from his body before the crucifixion. There are still religious systems that teach that today. 
that the spirit was absent from the body when the body was crucified. So the actual spirit of God didn't die. Well, that's a little hard to explain. How did the spirit end up in the depths? Preaching and teaching those who are in the depths. Oh, that's another sermon for another time. I wish we had time to go into it. But First John chapter 4, verse 2. John is referring to speaking against the Gnostic heresy. And he says the following. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Of which you have heard that is coming... And now is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist will try to claim that Jesus never really physically was here. And John was so serious about it, he said, this is how you know if someone is of the Lord or not. If they believe and they teach that Jesus came in the flesh. 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh... He was flesh and blood, make no mistake about it. And when he was sacrificed and his scarlet blood poured out across the cross, it was in the flesh. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So his sacrifice was real, it was felt, it was actual, it was in the flesh. And by the way, that means as we hurt, when we're in pain, when we physically are exhausted, he has felt those things. He does understand. He has gone through them. From the slightest little prick of a finger with a pen to excruciating pain someone might feel going through cancer, Jesus has felt it physically. He understands completely. Well, number four is the fine linen, that white linen. And Jesus was the only man who was absolutely righteous in the flesh. We've seen from previous studies that linen speaks of righteousness. Revelation 19, again, it speaks of the fine linen being the righteous acts of the saints. There's that connection between the two. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So those four colors on the veil, again speaking of Jesus, the veil in the flesh and how he was in the flesh. And so the veil which separated the people from their God points us directly to the flesh of Jesus, which does not any longer separate, but removes that separation. You know what happened. When the veil in the temple was standing strong and true, like I said, it might as well have been made of steel for all the people of Israel were concerned. But on the day that Jesus was crucified, when Jesus was on the cross, hour after hour, he hung there. And the whole spiritual realm waited and watched with bated breath. What would happen? Even the demons, you wonder, they must have been watching, wondering, is he going to come off the cross? Is he going to call the legions of angels? Is he going to give up? And he doesn't. And he dies. And in the moment he dies, Matthew 27, 50 tells us, he cried out again with a loud voice. He yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Same veil, folks. Same veil, that dividing line between the holy place and the most holy place, was ripped in two the moment Jesus died. Luke actually gives us a little more explanation. He says the veil of the temple was torn in two. The word literally uh, two there is in the middle. 
So the picture is this, and this is amazing. Had you been a priest standing in the temple at the time of the crucifixion, standing in the holy place, maybe going about your, your duties, making sure the candles are lit or the showbread was on the table, suddenly you'd hear this awful, deafening noise, a ripping sound. And you would look up and see from the top of the veil all the way to the bottom it being ripped. Why top to bottom? Because I believe the hands of God grabbed a hold of it and tore it in two in that moment. And in that moment, for the first time in your priestly life, for the first time in anyone's priestly life, you would find yourself looking directly into the holiest place. A place you had never been able to go, unless you had been the high priest. A place that was reserved only for that day of atonement. One time a year, you would look, you would see, you would have access, and you would be scared out of your wits, not understanding what had just happened on the cross. But on that day when Jesus died, I love this, John Corson says it this way, he said, God declared open house. Come on in. There is no longer a dividing veil because the veil which is his flesh, his flesh was torn, the veil was torn. And now Jesus has made ultimate atonement, perfect atonement, and we can enter through the veil. Significance is enormous. Not only did this signify, by the way, the full access we have to God the Father, but it signified that the replacement for the veil was now Jesus. And the only way to gain access to the Father is through the way, the truth, and the life. Through Jesus, there is no other way to God. We know this, we've talked about this many times. But if you ever doubt, if you're ever talking with someone of maybe a more heretical belief system, who says there are other ways to the Father. Be clear about this. There's only one way, and that is through the veil, and the veil is His flesh. That's it. There's no other way to come to the Lord. The veil, Jesus' flesh, what the Hebrew writer calls a new and living way. Wow. Verse 36. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent. Now, before I go on, understand, as you look up at the tabernacle, you can kind of see it. The tabernacle is not the white linen wall that goes all the way around. That's the outer courtyard. Oftentimes that whole setup is thought of as the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself, thanks Clark, is the little tent inside. That's the tabernacle. Now when scripture speaks of it, oftentimes it will speak of the whole thing as a whole, but the specific tabernacle is the little tent that held the holy place and the most holy place. And so now we move out and we're talking about the door and you can see at the front end of the tabernacle right there on the east side of the tabernacle facing down. The front end, the screen. Reading on, verse 36. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Again, same picture. The work of a weaver. That's so interesting to me. Same colors again. These are the colors that grace the inside of the tabernacle. These are the colors on the veil. And now the colors on the door. Remember that. Tells us you shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold. Their hooks also being of gold. And you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Every doorway pictures Jesus. Every door that one had to go through as you went further and further into the holy place, closer and closer to the Lord, every door pictures Jesus. Because as he said, and we'll see again in a moment, he said, I am the door. I'm the door. 
No man comes to the Father but through me. But I want to notice something real quickly before moving on. The five pillars of common acacia wood, but overlaid with the purest gold. We've talked about this before. Five is the number of what in the Bible? Do you recall? Grace. It's the number of grace. Five is the number of grace. There are many reasons for that, and if you don't know what they are, eventually if a recording is available last week, you can find out, or you can ask me afterward. But it's the number of grace, the number five. And this is how we enter in. We enter in by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. But acacia wood, overlaid with gold, we've also talked about, it's yet again a picture of Jesus. The acacia wood being a picture of his humanity. The gold, a picture of his deity. The two together being one thing, and yet two things. The humanity, the deity of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. But notice this, as you look at the the scripture here, it tells us, verse 37, you shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen, overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of, what color? What metal? Bronze. Five sockets of bronze for them. Now, we've just finished decorating our house, and as you decorate a home, you tend to choose things that go together. You, You want, I mean, if you're, serious about these kind of things. I don't know how serious we really are, but if you want to decorate, you kind of get, you don't use all different colors of wood. You tend to have a, a theme of wood. Now, I never did before in my life. I do now. It's kind of cool. But we had to make choices in this house like what color are the hinges going to be on the doors? You know, when we were asked that question, my first response was, who cares? Yes. Just put them up. I don't care. Well, what color are your faucets going to be? Just, does water come out? Because that's what I want. The, the water, that's what I want. The clear. Uh, I want a clear color. You know, what color are the handles of all the doors going to be? And so we went into this. Honestly, it was kind of a sickening process of choosing all these stupid little things. They're all going to burn anyway. Burn or melt, they're going to be gone. But we did choose specific colors that went with colors. And so I read this, and maybe it's because the house building thing is so fresh in my mind, but I think... Why, Lord? You can design this however you want. Why are we now sticking gold into bronze? Why not just have gold into gold? Well, you know that all these things mean something. It's interesting, the gold that speaks so much of the deity, of the, the awesome godliness of Jesus, is stuck into bronze, which speaks of what in Scripture? What does bronze speak of? the bronze altar it speaks of judgment it speaks of judgment you know what color Goliath's helmet was when the rock sunk deep into his forehead it was bronze it was bronze bronze shows up many times and always as a picture of judgment Samson was chained up with bronze And of course, probably the most powerful picture of bronze and judgment comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. We won't turn there, but I'll tell you the story very quickly. You may know it. The people of Israel are griping and complaining again, as they had so many times over and over. And as they're in the desert, and the Lord is feeding them quail, He's giving them meat, He's feeding them the manna, the bread, He's providing water from rocks, He's doing amazing things, He is taking care of the people, but they're whining and complaining. Where are the onions? Where are the leeks? I'll tell you where the leaks were. It was in their brains for not paying attention to what God was doing around them. And so as they whined and complained, the Lord said to Moses, I've had it. I'm done. 
they're going to have a little taste of judgment. And snakes came throughout the camp. You ever have one of those dreams? Snakes everywhere? I hate those. Anyway, the snakes came throughout the camp and they had a poisonous bite, a bite that would kill. And as these snakes began biting the people, it was very painful. And as people began to die, the people cried out to God for mercy in his judgment. And what did God tell Moses to do? You remember this? Take a, a staff of bronze and create, make around it a snake that would go up on this staff. And you lift that staff up high above all the people and you tell them, look at the staff and believe in me and I will heal them. I will lift that curse of judgment. Jesus makes direct application for this action of God. He explains it finally to us in John 3.14. As Jesus in the night was speaking with Nicodemus, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now you may say, well, i got a problem with that right there. Because why, if the, if the staff of bronze, understand the bronze being judgment and the staff looking, you know, like a cross being lifted up, but why a serpent? Because when I look at Jesus at the cross, he was not a serpent, was he? Oh, wasn't he? What did Jesus become on the cross? He became sin. He became sin. And so, what better picture of sin than the serpent itself on that bronze pole? That picture of judgment. But Jesus, the gold, the deity, the beauty of Jesus, went into the sockets of bronze. He went into judgment for us as these gold, uh, these gold hooks and these go into the sockets of bronze. Deity going into judgment instead of you and I. We see it clearly. It is the judgment of Jesus not Jesus judging the world that is something he will do in the future the first time he came he took the judgment it is the judgment of Jesus not that which he renders but that which he received his own judgment Jesus day in court uh, Dennis Rainey the accused man of being the BTK killer well he was arraigned in court I don't know if you saw that on the news he stood silent in court he stood up as, as not willing to say anything and he entered a plea of not guilty. His wife actually had sent him a note apparently this last week asking him, please, plead guilty and don't take the family through this trial. But he ignored her and he has pleaded not guilty. It will remain to be seen what happens. But we know that Jesus also stood silent in his trials. Although he was not guilty, he entered no plea but took the guilt of man. It was judgment day for Jesus. When the gold went into the bronze, when that which was perfect and holy and heavenly and godly took on our judgment. At the bronze altar, judgment was rendered on Israel. Guilty. And the payment was the blood of animals at that altar. We'll look at it in just a moment. And the blood was split, was spilt, I'm sorry, and sprinkled all over the altar. And the altar... The altar is interesting. Did we skip that part? Let's go to Exodus chapter 27 and read on the altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long and five cubits wide. That would be seven and a half by seven and a half feet. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. So seven and a half by seven and a half feet and four and a half feet high. This is a big altar. 
tells us you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Again, the picture of judgment. And it says you shall make its pails for removing its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make it, or make for it, a grating of network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners, and you shall put it beneath, under the ledge of the altar, so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with, again, bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the, into the rings, so that the poles shall be carried on the two sides of the altar when it is carried, which meant the altar was portable. Wherever the people went, wherever they sinned, the altar was there. The altar went with them. And the Lord says, You shall make it hollow with planks, as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. And this bronze altar, it's interesting, it had four horns on it. That is four sharp edges on either side of the, of the four corners of this square altar were these horns that stuck up. What were the horns for? They were for lashing down the animal that was to be sacrificed. They would take the rope and they would tie it around the horns and across the animal, all the way across, to hold the animal down so that it could not get away from the sacrifice. So that it couldn't leap up and run off. It was tied to the horns on the altar. Four horns on the altar. Four horns to tie the sacrifice down just as Jesus was held to the cross in four ways. He had a nail in his left hand. He had a nail in his right hand. He had a nail in his feet. And the blood of Jesus was sprinkled all over the cross as he took on the full force and fury of God's wrath in the judgment day of Jesus. I'd like you to flip to Matthew 27 for a moment. Matthew 27, verse 38. Now you may have read the story a hundred times, but there's something that jumped out at me this week that is amazing, astounding, and it fits right into what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 27, first book of the New Testament, page 1007 in my Bible. Matthew 27, and verse 38. At that time... Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But he couldn't. He couldn't. Read on, verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, watch this, listen to this, he saved others. Amazing. Stop right there. He saved others. That's exactly what was going on on the cross. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. He saved others. Why couldn't he come down on the cross? What kept him bound to that altar? He saved others. And it goes on and says, they said, his enemies shouted out, he cannot save himself. That's right. That's absolutely right. He saved others on the cross. He could not save himself on the cross. 
They went on and said, He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in Him. Verse 43, He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him now if He delights in Him, for He said, I am the Son of God. You know what's interesting about verse 43? They are quoting from Psalm 22, which is the psalm of the crucifixion. It is the exact psalm that if you read through it, you get a graphic depiction of Jesus on the cross. It's the most stunning thing in the Old Testament next to maybe Isaiah 53, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, the scribes, quote Psalm 22 to describe Jesus on the cross, fitting right into prophecy without having a clue that's what they were doing. I love stuff like that. Isn't God amazing? But these priests were absolutely right. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Because if Jesus had saved himself, he would not have saved others. If he had come down from the cross, we would have immediately been candidates for the cross. We would have been lined up, every one of us, to end up there in absolute judgment. But instead, Jesus took on himself the full force and fury of the wrath of God on the cross, every sin ever committed. What was it that held him to the cross? Four horns on the altar. Four things that held him to the cross. The nail in his left hand. The nail in his right hand. The nail in his feet. But more than any of the nails, it was the love in his heart, his intense passion for you and for me that kept Jesus bound to the cross. Contrast that. That amazing, painful, loving sacrifice with the only judgment left for a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And we go, oh no, I thought judgment was at the cross. I thought that was where it was taken care of. But now Paul's come along and he's telling me I have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? i got to stand before him guilty knowing that he went to the cross for me? Knowing that he knows everything that he died for about me? He's aware of that? I have to stand before that judgment. Well, any of you have heard this before, you know, judgment. The judgment seat of Christ there, the word is bima in the Greek. The bima seat. B-E-M-A. And the bima seat was a platform. This is Bema in the Greek, and the Greeks understood this. They would have known this. Reading this, they would have gone, oh, we would stand before the Bema seat of Christ. What exactly is that? It's the platform that was used in sporting events, like the Olympic Games. And after the contestants had run the race, you had first place, second place, third place, fourth place. They had all run the race. They would appear before the Bema seat. And the judge who sat on that seat would give out rewards based on how they ran. Getting the judgment seat of Christ, listen to this, has nothing to do with salvation. Because you've already been through Judgment Day. It happened on the cross. Jesus' Judgment Day was your Judgment Day if you, if you go to the Father through the flesh, through the veil that is Jesus. Your judgment has been paid. Your salvation is secure. So what is this? This is where we go to collect our rewards for running the race in this life. Paul said, Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And later in his life, toward the end of his life, 
2 Timothy 4 verse 7 Paul said I have fought the good fight I finished the course I kept the faith and in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness you get this picture of the you know the leafy crown that the Greeks would wear when they won in the races a crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing which Again, another little side note. A lot of side notes in my head tonight. Those who have loved His appearing. A special reward game for those who are looking for Him. Who are waiting for Him. I imagine there are going to be a lot of people who are saved. Who are, who are going to be caught up. Who are going to be absolutely amazed at what's going on. Whoa, what's going on? I'm saved? I'm okay? Kind of like on American Idol, you know, when they, they say... You're safe. You can sit down. There are going to be a lot of people like that. As they come up to Jesus to meet Him in the clouds going, Alright, great. But there are those who love His appearing. Who the second they set off the ground, they're going to go, Oh, this is it! I'm going! They have loved His appearing. They have longed for it. They have looked for it. And man, I'm telling you, I think personally... There's going to be some gifting going on. There are going to be some special awards for those who have loved His appearing. Okay, wait. So you're saying there are different rewards for different ways that we live our lives? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, that doesn't sound quite fair. Well, actually, it sounds perfectly fair to me. (laughs) Doesn't it? The amazing thing, gang, is that any of us have salvation at all. But salvation was bought at the cross. And yet there is the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about. This place where, well, Jesus said it, Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now listen, if there aren't specific gifts that he's talking about salvation, then my salvation is something I earn, isn't it? My salvation is based according to something I have done. But we know that's not the case. We know the Bible is clear. I'm saved by grace, through faith, and this is not of myself. I'm not saved by anything I can do. I have salvation by the grace of Jesus. However, however, there are gifts, there are rewards based on what you do. Based on how you live. Based on whether or not you, like Jacob, are willing to actually walk in and interrupt Rick's Bible study. I'm just totally kidding, man. Rewards. <laughs> I love you, man. You know that. Everybody's looking at you. Are you really embarrassed now? Not really. Okay. Rewards. Gifts of Jesus. Rendering the righteous judge to each person according to what they've done. And so we see in the bronze altar, flipping back to Exodus chapter 27 now, in the bronze altar, we see the cross, the judgment of Jesus. Well, very quickly reading on. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side. There shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen. A hundred cubits long for one side. A hundred cubits, that would be 150 feet. A cubit is roughly 18 inches, so just add a half foot okay, for every cubit. And you got it. A hundred cubits long for one side. Its pillars shall be twenty. And with their twenty sockets of bronze, their hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver... Bronze and silver, bronze speaking of judgment, silver speaking of redemption. 
Likewise, for the north side, in length there shall be hangings, 100 cubits long, and its 20 pillars with their 20 sockets of bronze judgment, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver redemption from that judgment. Hand in hand, these two metals work. Verse 12, for the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. So you've got 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. This thing called the court of the tabernacle in verse 15 says for the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. This is the construction of the courtyard. And again, you can see the picture kind of behind me there. The courtyard is that white linen fence that goes all the way around, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. It contains in the courtyard that bronze altar, the first thing that you see as you come into the courtyard. Followed then by the bronze laver, and then followed after that by the door that we've just looked at, the door to the tabernacle itself. Inside the tabernacle, those, those three pieces of, of furniture there, the lampstand, table of showbread, altar of incense. I'm just trying to drill this into your head. You need to be able to see this. Then you go around the, the veil, and in there is the most holy place with what? The ark and what's on top of the ark? The mercy seat. You got it. Good. Okay, so here we are. The linen fence. The linen fence. Linen speaking again of righteousness in the Bible. The linen fence kept out those who were not included, those who were not righteous. Well, so you're saying Israel was righteous? No. But I'm saying once a year they were completely atoned for. And they were the only people on the face of the planet at the time who were atoned for, the only people who could truly be considered at least one day a year righteous. The courtyard was that place where they could enter. They were insiders. They were the people of God. They were a special people. And gang, we couldn't have entered in because of God's righteous requirements. And nobody from Israel could have entered in unless they had atonement because of God's righteous requirements. And as a matter of fact, even in the church today, not a single one of us could enter in because of God's righteous requirements if not for atonement. Now this is important because for the person who thinks, I'm a pretty good person. I, I help little old ladies across the street. You know, I pay my cable bill. I certainly haven't murdered anybody or stolen anything or committed adultery and all those we're talking about on Sunday and realizing that yes we have. I'm a good person. Well I would suggest for the person who says they're a good person and if you have a friend who says they're a good person I would just direct them to the Sermon on the Mount. Have them just read Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. Specifically chapter 5 where Jesus says okay you said you shouldn't murder but you see if you're angry at your brother you've murdered him. Oh, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, guess what? If you have looked at a woman with lust in your eyes, you're done. When I read that as a kid, I was so bummed. Seriously, when I was in college and I was dating Cheryl and we weren't married, and I'm thinking, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to get all the way to marriage without having committed adultery. And I read that, it's like... <laughs> there were some really good looking girls on my college campus you look at a woman with lust in your eyes you're done you're out of there Jesus says this is the standard of righteousness it is a standard bar set so high not a single one of us could enter in we can't do it 
This outer fence of beautiful white linen and without the linen of righteousness bright and clean we cannot come in. We cannot come in. So what is the standard of the church today? What is the standard of entrance into the body of Christ? How can we actually call ourselves insiders? Is it by our righteousness? Of course not. Flip over to Acts chapter 2 real quickly. Acts chapter 2. And this is important because it actually goes to a, a principle, I guess you could call it, philosophy that, that we started out at the bridge. And I, by the way, say this in no judgment of other churches, but I just want you to listen carefully to how one enters into the body according to Scripture. How one becomes an insider. How you move into the inner, into the courtyard, the outer courtyard.